Chapter 17 A Day in the Sun The tunnel at Wembley Stadium sloped slightly upwards. It was also eerily quiet and cool. The red-hot atmosphere and scorching sunshine that waited outside made the effect uniquely disconcerting. The two teams lined up alongside each other, knowing that for the next ninety minutes they must be enemies. However, as they stood and waited that interminable wait, the two opposing sides were bound together as tightly as the knots of nerves in their stomachs. All that interrupted the hush was the anxious clack of studded boots on the concrete floor and the occasional shout of encouragement. Outside, in the bright afternoon sun, it was all noise and fidgety anticipation. Wembley Stadium's roof only just managed to keep a lid on the hundred thousand hopes that rested on the shoulders of these twenty-two men. For Watford, it was the culmination of an incredible journey, and although history records the names of the eleven who made the final step, they represented everyone who had played a part along the way. On the players' chests, the neatly embroidered lettering under the badge on the shirt was a reminder of how far the club had come. It read, FA Cup Final, Wembley, 1984. Six years earlier, Watford supporters had celebrated winning the Fourth Division Championship. Now they were taking part in a match that would be watched all around the world. This was the Cup Final, the culmination of the English season a day when even those with only a passing interest in football sat down to watch the match. It is easy to forget how much the cup final meant in the days before blanket television coverage, Super Sundays and the overblown race for fourth place. It was the day when supporters of every club in the country, even the league champions, looked on with a touch of envy, wishing they were in the spotlight instead. However much the players tried to convince themselves this was just an ordinary match, all the pomp and ceremony said otherwise. Before they even reached Wembley's lush grass, they had to make their way slowly up the tunnel and across the desert of sandy perimeter track. Forget the match. This was the moment that would determine who was ready for the occasion and who would wilt. While every sinew implored them to run onto the pitch in the usual fashion, they had to walk slowly and deliberately into the arena. The roar, as the spectators got their first glimpse of the two teams, was overwhelming. It buffeted the players with the force of opening an aircraft door mid-flight, and it was enough to cause them to recoil. The terraces were a mass of colourful flags and banners, and the scale of the sight before them was awe-inspiring. How could you possibly declare yourself ready for this? All the players wanted to do was get on with the match, but cup final protocol meant the kick-off took an age to arrive. The players waited to be introduced to the Duke of York and the officials from the Football Association, Ted Croker, Bert Millerchip and Lionel Smart. All of a sudden there was time for the significance of the surroundings to sink in. Mouths went dry and the clammy handshakes and incongruous small talk did nothing to quell the fluttering butterflies. Finally the stadium stood for the national anthem. Another stirring reminder that this was a showpiece event a day that would live with them for the rest of their lives and the realisation of every boy's dream. Graham Taylor had urged Watford's supporters to be in good voice for the national anthem and the traditional cup final hymn, Abide With Me, to restore some of the old values that had slipped in recent years. 
Both sets of fans responded magnificently, setting the tone for an afternoon that was to be dubbed the Friendly Cup Final. Everyone who was there will recall the moment that caused a lump to form in the throat and a tear to well in the corner of the eye. For Elton John it was hearing abide with me. He could not hold back his emotions any longer, and he wept. That hymn had long held a special significance for him, and he knew it was pointless trying to hold the tears at bay. With so many thoughts swirling wildly, it was easy to overlook that there was a football match to be played. The next ninety minutes would create heroes and break hearts, and by five o'clock Wembley's famous Twin Towers would have another story to tell. Down in the centre circle, the two captains, Kevin Ratcliffe and Les Taylor, completed the final formalities, becoming suddenly aware of how strongly the sun was beating down. This was going to be a draining afternoon, physically as well as emotionally. Taylor's heart skipped a beat and his cheeks flushed as he realised he had left Watford's pennant behind in the dressing room. "'When you see the pictures of me shaking hands with Kevin, there's no Watford pennant,' he says. This was a minor oversight, but it was also a poignant demonstration that events like this were not second nature to Watford's players. As well prepared as they were, the FA Cup final did not come with a checklist. For a fleeting moment, Taylor felt like a child arriving at his school swimming gala, without any trunks, but he quickly pushed it to the back of his mind. Up in the director's box, Elton's tears were still drying on his cheek. The ball was placed on the centre spot. This was it. The whistle blew. Soon after Watford had beaten Plymouth Argyle to reach Wembley, the directors met to make plans for the biggest day in the club's history. There was a lot to discuss, but before they started, Elton wanted to make one thing clear. Someone will ask what I'm going to do for a cup final song, he said. So I just want you to know, that's not me at all. It's not my scene, and I'm not going to get involved with anything like that. It wasn't that Elton was a killjoy, but as a serious musician he knew that cup-final records were almost always terrible. The tabloids would expect him to do something, and that was reason enough not to. Yes, he'd once invited the squad to sing some backing harmonies for one of his albums, but this was completely different. The idea of going on Top of the Pops to play a novelty football record while his players wearing tracksuits, of course, mouthed along to the words, nodded their heads and tried not to look too embarrassed was a complete non-starter. When tickets for the final went on sale, the queues snaked down Occupation Road, and the town was festooned with red, yellow and black ribbons. Shop windows had been invaded by papier-mâché hornets and decorated with cardboard FA cups covered in tinfoil. Children went to school with Watford scarves round their necks, despite the fact it was a pleasantly warm spring. Hats, scarves and flags were sold as quickly as the club could get them in from their supplies, and Benskins brewed a commemorative FA Cup final ale. Unfortunately, its aftertaste was akin to being elbowed in the throat by a Scotsman. Graham Taylor was determined to ensure the build-up to the match followed the normal routine, but that was to prove difficult. For a start, they had to find an alternative training ground, because the contract with the owners of their usual base in Honeypot Lane, Stanmore, expired the Friday before the final league game of the season and would not resume until July. Watford had tried to negotiate a week's extension, but the ground had already been booked for something else. It sounds incredible now, but they couldn't give us another week, they just couldn't do it, so I had to find another training ground, says Taylor. Eventually the club managed to rent a sports pitch owned by Wimpy, 
a construction company, on the A41 near Stanmore, but it was far from ideal. We had somewhere to train, but sometimes there wasn't hot water, says Taylor. More than once the players had to drive back to Vicarage Road for a shower after training. Many of the players were completely unaware the change of venue had been forced upon them. They assumed that Taylor had wanted to mix things up a bit to keep everyone on their toes before the final. A change of surroundings might sharpen the focus and keep the media at arm's length, perhaps. But it didn't quite work like that. I hadn't realised that the change would be so unsettling, Taylor says. Then we had a lot of journalists and photographers who wanted interviews and all that had to be fitted in. All in all, it wasn't a good week's approach to the game, and as the manager, I take responsibility for that. Each of the players responded differently. Some allowed it all to wash over them. Others revelled in the attention from the television crews, but some wanted to stick to their usual way of doing things. We're just like animals, really, footballers. We're creatures of habit, says Steve Sherwood. I liked the routine we had, but it all changed in the week before the cup final. By the standards of the day, the media spotlight was intense. Every newspaper sought to find a different angle, and with Elton out of the country on tour, the youngsters in the team became the story. Taylor tried to steer the attention away from his defenders, but the press had already worked out that the line-up of Lee Sinnott, who was 18, David Bardsley, 19, Neil Price, 20, and Steve Terry, 21, would be the youngest cup final back four in history. George Riley and Maurice Johnston cooperated with one of the tabloids, and the story was full of the usual red-top bluster. Elton's rocket men to melt toffees. That sort of thing. We were supposed to get £500 each, says Riley, but the guy from the paper sent a cheque for a grand to Morris, and I didn't see any of it. So tell him he owes me £500, plus 25 years' worth of interest. Jimmy Greaves, the former Tottenham and Chelsea striker who was now a television pundit, joined the team at the training ground one day to film a piece for ITV's build-up. It was fun having Greavesy down, says Nigel Callahan, but it was strange. On the one hand it took your mind off the match, but on the other you knew he was only there because we had a cup final coming up. Having named the team, hoping to put young minds at rest, Taylor was, to an extent, straight-jacketed. Even though a lot of the players would have been pretty sure of their places, knowing for certain they were in the side took some of the edge off the week's work. Perhaps one or two were a little too relaxed. I think I was wrong to name it seven days before, says Taylor. I saw one or two things, but it was too late to do anything about it. I should have waited a bit longer and followed a similar routine to any other match. Taylor couldn't afford to dwell on the decision. It had been made, and although he realised his mistake within hours, he also knew there was no way he could go back on it. How could you tell someone they were playing in the cup final one day and then snatch it all away the next? You simply couldn't. With Wilf Rostron suspended, the job of naming a captain had been straightforward, and Les Taylor knew a couple of weeks before the game that he'd be leading the team out at Wembley. Regardless of whether Steve Sims or Pat Rice were selected, it wasn't too much of a shock, to be honest, says the stand-in captain, who had skipped the side before. There wasn't too much experience in the team. There was really only Steve Sherwood and myself, and I don't think Graham would have been one to have a goalkeeper as captain. Sherwood was a very quiet, softly spoken guy, so he wasn't going to be your captain. As the match approached, Les Taylor allowed himself to dream and pondered what he might do if Watford won. You can't help your mind wandering he says. 
You're obviously thinking about going up those steps to lift the cup. It crossed my mind. Should I get Wilf to go up and get it? Would they even let him, seeing as he was suspended? I don't know. I wondered whether to get Elton to lift it or Graham. I knew I was the captain by default, really. If Wilf hadn't been sent off, he'd have been the captain. Of course, we'll never know what I'd have done, because we didn't win. But all these things were going round in my head the week before the game. As the excitement built, the players tried not to be too boisterous when Rostrum was around. They were acutely aware that their captain would not be with them during the match. Some tried not to mention Wembley in Rostrum's presence, but the last thing he wanted was the rest of the lads tiptoeing around him. They would be playing in the biggest game of their lives and had to prepare for it and embrace it. Rostrum was the one who had to come to terms with the thought of missing out, which he did slowly. It was awkward to be around, Rostrum says. Not hard, but awkward. Particularly when they were planning for the actual match and I wasn't a part of it. But by then I decided I would go to the game, so I thought the best thing I could do was to encourage them and try to be some help. On Monday, May the 14th, five days before the final, Everton played their last match of the league season at Upton Park against West Ham United. It offered Taylor one last chance to see his opponents in action, but it was also his oldest daughter, Joanne's 18th birthday, and he had no intention of missing the party. There was no way he'd spend the evening jotting down notes about a team he already knew well instead of marking a milestone in his daughter's life. Family came first, even in cup final week. Besides, he wouldn't learn anything worthwhile watching Everton soft-pedal through a game so close to the final. It's funny how little coincidences in life occur. Exactly eighteen years earlier, to the day, Taylor had rushed home from the hospital shortly after his daughter's birth to watch Everton beat Sheffield Wednesday 3-2 in the FA Cup final. Now here he was, his daughter on the cusp of adulthood, and he was preparing his own team for a cup final and the opponents were Everton. Taylor was happy with his preparation, and he knew it was more important to concentrate on what his players would be doing for the match, but he also knew that family superseded all of that. A daughter's 18th birthday only comes round once. The party that evening, celebrating with his family, was a brief hiatus from all the talk of Wembley. Watford supporters approached the match feeling they had a very good chance of beating Everton. They were a good team, but facing them was certainly not as daunting a prospect as facing Liverpool would have been. When Watford had played at Goodison Park the previous October, Everton had been in disarray. They were a brittle, unimaginative bunch, a far cry from the technically precise teams that had earned the club a nickname of which they were proud, the School of Science. Howard Kendall, their manager, had teetered on the brink of the sack for weeks, but two cup runs had earned him one stay of execution after another. They held Liverpool to a goalless draw in the Milk Cup final at Wembley, only to lose 1-0 in the replay at Main Road, Manchester City Stadium. Kevin Richardson, a 21-year-old Geordie who played on the left side of Everton's midfield in Manchester that night, remembers the sickening feeling of hearing their victorious opponents celebrating in the dressing room down the corridor after the match. I felt so drained. Completely empty he says. I remember looking round and everyone was just staring at their feet and all you could hear was them singing. It was horrible. 
We'd played at Wembley a few days earlier and done well. But when you lose a cup final, you completely forget all the good moments you had along the way. You just feel numb. Everton central defender Derek Mountfield says defeat spurred the team on in the FA Cup. I was very low after that game because we felt we should have beaten Liverpool first time round. It took a little while to get over it, but our captain Kevin Ratcliffe said to me, Look, we've got another chance in the FA Cup, so stop moping. Once we'd reached the final, he said to me, Remember how you felt after the Milk Cup final? Well, imagine what it'd be like to feel that all summer, so let's go and win this one. That thought stuck with me through the build-up to the Watford game. David Bardsley was declared fit and the team was confirmed. All that remained was to decide who should sit on the bench. Paul Atkinson had not bowled over the supporters since his recovery from an ankle injury, but he was versatile, so he got the edge over the other leading candidate for the role, Richard Jobson. Two days before the final, the squad travelled to Wembley Stadium for a training session on the pitch. I don't know how he did it, says Neil Price. I'm pretty sure that wasn't the thing teams usually did before a cup final, so maybe he, Taylor, bunged someone a few quid to let us on the pitch, I don't know. This was a golden opportunity to become familiar with the stadium. It might perhaps take the edge off things on match day. After a warm-up and a few drills, the first team faced the reserves in a short practice match, 20 minutes each way. For those who knew they wouldn't be playing in the final, it was nevertheless an exciting opportunity. For Charlie Palmer, who had played in the UEFA Cup earlier in the season, but wasn't in the cup final squad, it was a day trip he remembers less fondly. What stung me was that we had this practice match, and I had assumed I'd be right back for the reserves. I thought I'd at least get to play on the Wembley pitch, but the manager named the two teams, and I wasn't in either of them, so I had to sit on the bench while they all played this game. I remember thinking to myself, one day I'll come back, and I will play here. And I did. No one could ever accuse the manager of failing to prepare his team thoroughly. No stone was left unturned, and Price felt there was a downside to Taylor's desire to plan for every eventuality. He sat us down and said that if we went two goals behind, he would take me off, put Atkinson on the left of midfield, move Kenny Jacket to the back and put Barnsley behind the strikers, says Price. That was how methodical he was. He thought about everything. I can understand that he needed to have it all sorted out in his own head, and perhaps he needed to run through that in training so he knew everyone was comfortable with it. But for me as a young kid, I didn't need to know that. It didn't help me to know I'd be coming on if we went 2-0 down, even if I was playing well. He could have kept that to himself, and that did affect me. Watford spent the second half of the week in the Labrook Hotel, on Elton Way, away from their families and out of reach of the media. For some of them it increased the feeling that this was a special match, for others it felt like there was a lot of time spent kicking their heels. There was nothing to do there, says Price. We were stuck in the hotel, and it did seem like a long time, although it was probably only two or three nights. Once we were in there, it felt like we were just waiting for this thing to happen, but it wasn't getting any closer. I don't know what the other side of that would have been like. What would have happened if we'd all stayed in our own homes? Would the media have been turning up at your house? Because they did do that in those days. They'd just knock on the door. I can understand why he wanted to keep us away from that. I can't say I enjoyed the build-up much, says Sherwood. The night before a game, I liked to do my own thing, but we were eating together and then filling in time a bit. 
The wives and girlfriends were only allowed to come in at certain times, like after our evening meal. You'd have a chat and then they'd go home. If we'd had to travel a hundred miles for the game, it would have felt more natural, but Wembley was only down the road, and I could have been home in twenty minutes, so it felt a bit strange. Maybe there were a couple of the lads Graham was worried might go out and attract attention. I don't know. Morris Johnston, who usually needed to be tethered to something immovable to prevent him from hitting the clubs and wine bars, may have been one of those Taylor was concerned about. The build-up was awesome, Johnston says. All the television shows were about the cup final, and the fans were buzzing. Wherever you were, they were wishing you luck. But I never got out to enjoy it all, because Graham had us locked away. If you'd have let us out, Graham, I may have scored a hat-trick. Although the match was important, Taylor was keen to ensure his players retained a sense of proportion as the day drew closer. He took the squad to a hospital in Stanmore one afternoon during the week. There were young people who'd been in motor accidents and were paralysed, says John Ward. We went to see them, say hello and give out a few gifts. It was the sort of thing Watford Football Club always did, but it was important during that week that we did it, to show that there were things that mattered more than football. It helped put the cup final in perspective. Once Taylor was satisfied the players were all safely tucked up in bed the night before the game, and after double-checking on Morris Johnston, the management and their wives enjoyed their traditional pre-cup tie meal. Taylor had reserved a room in the basement of the hotel, where they had their dinner and a few glasses of wine. "'I usually found out what the players were up to,' says Taylor, "'but I'd be surprised if they knew we were doing that. "'I couldn't afford to get caught out, "'but it had become such a superstition by then.' We'd told the players to come down to eat their meal, and we said we'd be having ours a bit later after our staff meeting. Once they'd all gone to bed, the wives arrived, and we had our little celebration. As it turned out, the cup final marked the end of the tradition. It was the final time they held one of those dinner parties. No one slept particularly well that night. It was like waiting for Christmas Day, and your wedding day rolled into one. So much to look forward to, but a natural sense of apprehension. At about ten o'clock on cup final morning, Eddie Plumley's home phone rang. It was Graham Taylor. Immediately, I thought something awful had happened, says Plumley. What is it? What's wrong? asked the chief executive. Nothing. We're fine. We're absolutely fine. I just wanted to call to say thank you for everything you've done. It's been absolutely fantastic, and let's hope we can finish it all off this afternoon. Anyway, I've got a gift for you, which I'll give to you tonight, said Taylor. Immediately there was a lump in Plumley's throat, and the tears welled in his eyes. In fact, his voice began to quiver as he recounted that phone call more than twenty-five years on. I was struggling to talk. The fact he had called on the morning of the most important match for him and his team to thank me for doing my job meant more than anything. I found out later that he had made quite a few of those phone calls that morning, which gives you some indication of what it was to work with him. I don't mind admitting, I was crying when I came off the phone. Later on he presented all of the staff and his management with a team shirt with a cup final embroidery on. He made sure there were enough to go round. They are the sort of gestures you don't forget. Back at the team hotel, things were to be unforgettable for a different reason. The build-up to the cup final was a big deal for the two broadcasters, BBC and ITV, and they had sent a comedian to each team's hotel to film a few links and sketches. Everton had Freddie Starr, who, at least, was a Toffee supporter, 
Bizarrely, the BBC sent Michael Barrymore to visit Watford. It was to prove an awkward experience. The BBC's Bob Wilson conducted an excruciating interview with the comedian who was blacked up, wearing a dark curly wig and a Watford kit. Barrymore was supposed to be impersonating John Barnes, but even for 1984 it was offensive. The joke was that Barrymore's Barnes answered Wilson's questions by singing lines from Bob Marley songs. Terrible accent and the appalling stereotyping made it beyond embarrassing for those unfortunate enough to see it. The players were not spared either. On match days I never usually had breakfast, says Callahan. I just had a pre-match meal at lunchtime. I was rooming with David Bardsley and we had a knock on the door saying we had to go down for breakfast. I didn't want to, but they said we had to. As I'm walking into the room, Barrymore's behind me, following me and doing some sort of silly walk. What was that all about? Watford's players forced a few laughs. It was so staged, says Paul Atkinson, never the most gregarious member of the squad. I felt a bit uncomfortable with it, and I think all the lads did. Barrymore was doing his Buzzle Fortley impressions, says Les Taylor. It was about the only thing he did, wasn't it? And even that wasn't very good. It was stupid, really. We should have said no, in hindsight. But these things tend to get imposed on you. It was the same for Everton, so it's not an excuse, but it didn't make it the most relaxing morning. Steve Harrison wasn't impressed either. It wasn't for me, that, he says. Barrymore tried his best, but he didn't exactly go down a bomb. I think he took the mickey too much and tried to show them up a bit and I didn't really like that kind of thing. It wasn't that he spoiled the day, but it just wasn't very funny. Everton had trained as usual on Friday morning before travelling south to the Bell House Hotel in Beaconsfield in the early afternoon. The routine never changed under Howard, says Derek Mountfield. We had our evening meal at 7.30, then we were free to do what we wanted to do. It felt just like any other away game in London. Even the commotion created by Freddie Starr messing about in the hotel garden first thing on Saturday morning went down well. There was all this banging going on and all the lads were hanging out of the window, says Kevin Richardson. It was Freddie in his German soldier's outfit and wellies, which was his trademark, I suppose. He was pretending to fall in a hole making jokes. It was funny, really. If there was a difference between the two sides, it was that most of the Everton players had already had a taste of Wembley and the bitter tang of cup-final defeat. They knew what to expect. Although they had recorded a cup-final record, Here We Go, and appeared on Terry Wogan's chat show to perform it, the Everton team were going to Wembley to win. We were adamant that we were going to get our hands on some silverware, says their striker Graham Sharp. Apart from the stupid song, everything was pretty low-key for us. It was busy, with all the media and going to be fitted for the cup-final suits and all of those things, but we weren't getting carried away. Before the Everton team got on the coach to travel from Buckinghamshire to the stadium, they sat in the hotel lounge watching the build-up on television. Graham Taylor was on the TV and he said something like, It's a fantastic achievement to get to the final, and it's a great day for the fans, says Sharp. Howard turned to us and said, Hey, we're not going there to enjoy the day, we're going there to win. I'm not saying Watford didn't want to win, of course they did, but we were going there absolutely determined to win. There was no question about enjoying the day because we knew there was no worse feeling than losing. The whistle brought a roar from the crowd. 
George Riley tapped the ball to Morris Johnson, who led it back for Kenny Jackett to send a lofted pass towards Nigel Callahan on the right touchline. The ball sailed over Callahan's head out of play. At last, they were underway. Kendall knew all about Watford's attacking threat. In February, the sides had met in a superb 4-4 draw at Vicarage Road. Watford had been 4-2 ahead with 11 minutes to go, but Sharp and Adrian Heath scored late on. They could score some goals, says Sharp, but we were an entertaining side too. That game at Watford was a really enjoyable one, very open. It was exciting playing against them because they had pace and power and they tried to beat you. Whatever footballers say about winning is true, but there isn't a player alive who doesn't enjoy playing in a good open game where both teams are trying to win. You knew you'd get that with Watford, but they were a lot better as a footballing side than people ever gave them credit for. The Everton manager's priorities were to prevent Watford's attackers getting into the space behind the fullbacks, and to try to have a go at Neil Price, the least experienced member of the team, using Trevor Stevens' pace. Richardson, on Everton's left, was told to stop Bardsley overlapping and keep an eye on Callaghan. Howard and Colin, Harvey, Everton's assistant manager, told me to get back and stop them because if we could nullify them on one side we could hurt them elsewhere, says Richardson. We knew Bardsley was always going to be more dangerous going forward than the left-back, Price. On the other side we had Gary Stevens up against John Barnes. Now Gary was one of the fittest players I ever played with and he was the ideal person to have marking Barnes. There was no way I was going to run past Barsley and cross with my left foot, because I'm right-footed, so my game was to keep an eye on their two right-sided players and support where I could. I was playing instead of Kevin Sheedy, who was injured. If Sheedy had played, Watford might have had a bit more joy, because he was a more attacking player than me and naturally left-footed, so maybe Dave and Nigel would have had more space. Watford would always come at you in waves of attack, but we knew if we could soak that up and survive, we could get into the game. It was a red-hot day, it really was. No disrespect, but we could afford to let the ball do the work, because that was our way, whereas there was a lot of running and closing down involved in that Watford game. You can't keep that up for 90 minutes, not at the same intensity anyway, so we were patient and we waited for our chances. Watford's plan was to play their own way and try to attack them without leaving the defence exposed and, from the start, their fast-paced style gave them the edge. If ever there was a game when we needed to score first, this was it, says Graham Taylor. Watford had by far the better of the first 20 minutes, but the goal didn't come. Twice in quick succession, Les Taylor sent low, fizzing shots past Neville Southall's left-hand post. The two best chances fell to me, says Taylor. One went just wide, the other deflected off John Bailey and went wide, and we didn't even get a corner for it. Barnes had a chance at the far post, but managed to produce only a weak header. He'd have scored that, if he hadn't had that perm, jokes Price, and Morris Johnston failed to capitalise when he had a clear opportunity to shoot. I missed a breakaway and I thought, was that my chance to score in the cup final? He says, it was because it was to be a quiet game for him and his strike partner, Riley. At the other end, Sherwood was anxious to get a touch of the ball before he was called on to make a save, because his warm-up had been disrupted. The band was playing on our side of the pitch, he says. Usually, I'd have a good warm-up with Nigel Callahan shooting at me, but we didn't get as long because the band was in the way. Meanwhile, at the other end, Everton were passing it around and shooting like normal. That annoyed me. 
Once the game started, I didn't have much to do early on. I settled down and I thought we were on top. Watford's young defenders started well too. Lee Sinnott, at 18, was the youngest player on the pitch. Injuries got me back in the team, he says. First Ian Bolton, then Steve Sims and Paul Franklin all got injured. Paul had played extremely well when he was in the team, so if he had been fit, it would have been him in the semi-final and final, not me. And that's the way I looked at it. I was only 18 and had very little experience, but I was level-headed. I was a logical person. I was in the team and I had to do the job I'd been asked to do. Being so young, we could have frozen, but I don't think we froze at all. My job was to mark Graham Sharp and I got on with it. Alongside him in the centre of the defence was Steve Terry, who marked Andy Gray, signed by Everton from Wolverhampton Wanderers the previous November. The rugged centre-forward had won at Wembley before, scoring the winning goal for Wolves in the 1980 League Cup final. His arrival at Goodison Park had helped spark their revival. Marking Gray, who was all sharp angles and aggression, was a job Steve Sims, watching from the stands, would have relished. After a positive start, Watford felt the match begin to slip away from them. The right-back, David Barsley, who had spent a fortnight wondering if his knee injury would clear up, says the game passed him by. The race to be fit affected me, of course it did, he says. I didn't want to miss the final, but the game came and went before I knew it. When you're at that age, you don't realise what it's all about. If I'd been 32, I would have appreciated it more. In fact, I'm probably a better footballer now at 44 than I was when I was at Watford. The cup final was hugely nerve-wracking. I had no idea what to expect, and I actually don't remember much about the game at all. I know I'd have done a million things differently if it had come later in my career, but you have to appreciate that two years earlier I was not even playing professionally. A lot of the focus was on Watford's left flank, where Wilf Rostron should have been. I felt sorry for the young boy at left back, says Sharp. He had come from nowhere, and he was up against Trevor Stephen, who had joined from Burnley at the start of the season, and had broken into the team and made a real impact. Stephen was only twenty, the same age as Price, but in a very short time he'd established himself as one of the best young players in the country. He gave Price a hard time, which only encouraged Everton to give him the ball more often, and Watford struggled to cut the supply to Stephen. Watford missed not only Rostron's captaincy, but his ability to get forward and link up with John Barnes. No one ever gave Wilf the runaround, says Sherwood. You never thought, oh, Wilf had a bad game today. Even if things weren't going well, he would go back to his basics and was so reliable. It was a big loss, because the whole of the defence missed that steadying influence. Wilf used to take the pressure off me by telling me to stay forward, says Barnes. There were times when, I won't say I went missing, but if I was not in the game, Wilf would be talking to me all the time, and that helped me immensely. But I won't say I specifically missed him in the cup final, but the team missed him. Neil had a great left foot, and his delivery was excellent but he wasn't very pacey. In a team where we had lots of possession, he was a great player to have because he could cross from deep positions and play you in. I think you can say that in the cup final, it was when Everton started to have more of the ball that we struggled. We got pushed back as a team. Neil got pushed back, and the fact that Trevor Stephen could run Neil made it difficult for us. Obviously, they started to look to attack us down that side. Price was always a combative player from the old school of defending. As a full-back, he believed you had to show the winger there was going to be no leeway. Hit them early with a strong challenge, 
nothing deliberately nasty but a powerful block tackle with the full body weight behind it to deter the opponent from getting any ideas about skipping past. But when he had the opportunity to make a bold statement, Price found himself holding back because of the sense of occasion. Very early in the game the ball drops between me and Trevor, he says. I was not averse to going through the player, but I didn't because it was the cup final. I always remember that split second where I thought about it and held back, whereas usually I wouldn't have thought. If I had smashed him, gone through him and got the ball, or perhaps not got the ball and been booked, maybe that would have changed my game a bit and put me on top of Trevor. But I never got into it. I was always on the periphery of the game mentally, and I don't think I did the things that were natural to me. One thing that struck me was that you couldn't get instructions to your colleagues or hear anything because of the crowd noise. It was like playing in a capsule. You were on your own a lot of the time. I was completely unprepared for that. Senior people didn't tell me what it was going to be like, but perhaps they didn't know either. Graham was a very hands-on manager during a game. During a normal match, you'd hear him, even if you were on the opposite side of the pitch to the benches, but at Wembley it was like he wasn't there. The benches were so far back, and the noise was so intense. The occasion was incredible, and even though the dressing rooms weren't great, they were a bit run down, the place had so much history. I just wish I'd been told that everything around the game, the stadium, the day, it was all just hype, and that when we got on the pitch, it was just a normal game of football. Seven minutes before half-time, Everton scored with their first meaningful attack, and Watford's promising work evaporated. A scuffed shot from outside the area landed perfectly at Sharp's feet, and the Scotsman was able to turn quickly and fire it past Sherwood. The ball hit the inside of Sherwood's right-hand post, with the goalkeeper rooted to the spot. It came at me quite quickly, but I managed to control it with my left and hit it with my right, says Sharp. There were a few calls for offside, but I wasn't. The goal came at a very good time for us. Watford had been on top early on, but we had got back into it and because the goal came quite close to half-time, we were able to just sit tight and get to the break with the lead. That was absolutely vital because it took the wind out of Watford. I still think now, if Watford had scored first, it would have been a different game, because trying to chase a game at Wembley is very difficult. We did expect them to come at us, says Kevin Richardson, but the occasion, the weather, the commitment they were putting in, eventually it wore them down. And then came the second goal, and that was it. The goal was a bolt from the blue, a crushing blow from Andy Gray that bundled the ball into the back of the net and Watford's fading dreams into the gutter. It was a bitter pill to swallow, coated in a sickly layer of injustice. Watford, so determined to regroup and reassert themselves on the match, now faced a mammoth task. Six minutes into the second period, Everton attacked down Watford's vulnerable left. Price kept pace with Stephen, but he was never able to get close enough to block the cross. Stephen sent a high ball across the penalty area to the far post. It hung invitingly in the air. Sherwood had his eyes on it, and his arms up ready to pluck it neatly out of the sky. Gray didn't stand on ceremony. He was a ruthless centre-forward. Only one thought went through his mind. Put the ball in the net, however you can, and we'll argue about it in a minute. But get it in the goal. Gray got the man first. The ball slipped from Sherwood's tentative grasp. Steve Terry and Sherwood collided and came crashing down to earth. Gray did not stop to look back. As soon as the ball was over the line, he was away, celebrating, with his arm in the air. Steve Sherwood called it, and I tried to get out of the way, but Gray jumped into him, says Steve Terry. It was a foul. 
The referee, John Hunting, awarded the goal and Watford, brought up to respect the official's decision was final, muted their complaints and got on with the game. But the goal and the decision had knocked the stuffing out of them. The television replay shows that Gray headed Sherwood's arm, not the ball. It was a foul, no doubt about it, says the goalkeeper. He headed my arm, he didn't touch the ball. It shouldn't have been given. Bob Wilson, the former Arsenal goalkeeper who was working for the BBC, came round to the back of the goal during the second half and told me it was a foul. Andy Gray maintains to this day it was a perfectly good goal, says Sharp. You're going up to challenge, and you're going in fully committed. After that it's up to the referee, but there's no way you're not going to claim it. George Riley, who stands at six foot four inches and felt he was often penalised by referees because of his size, believes it would never have been awarded had the same incident happened at the other end of the pitch. Andy is five feet ten inches, and when you're that height you put your arm up when you're jumping to head the ball and you get away with it. If I did that, it was automatically a free kick. If I'd scored that goal, I'd have claimed it just like Gray did, but it would never have been given. When I was at West Brom with Gray, I said to him, that was never a goal, and he said, Did you read the papers, big man? It said Andy Gray, goal. Maybe Steve Sherwood should have come out and just punched him, the ball, and taken the lot out. Les Taylor agrees. It wasn't Steve Sherwood's fault because it was a foul, but Steve is six foot four inches tall. He shouldn't get battered by Andy Gray. It should have been the other way round. Watford's hopes of getting back into the game had been extinguished. After the second goal, it felt like I didn't touch the ball for fifteen minutes. We just went completely flat, says Riley. Watford were rarely a threat after that, and Everton, with their two-goal lead, could afford to sit back. Just as he had planned, Taylor took Price off, with Paul Atkinson going into the left side of midfield and Barnes taking a free roll behind the strikers, but by then Everton had things under control. Our front four were the biggest letdown, says Taylor. With our game, you just hope that the front four works out for you, but the best chances felt to me. It was disappointing to lose, but I felt I played quite well, personally, and that is always difficult because how you play is irrelevant if you don't win the game. But I was quite happy to have performed. We just didn't create the chances. Sinnott says, I think Everton's wide players did better on the day. I'm not blaming our wide men, but they got the ball to their wide men more. When the final whistle blew, the last remaining drops of energy drained from Watford's players as the men in blue celebrated. Defeat cast a long shadow over Watford's weary men and suddenly they felt like gatecrashers at a party. Once you've lost, you just want to get off the stage, says Sinnott. It's not your moment. You have given everything to try to win, but it's not your day and you have to stay out there and watch your opponents enjoying it all. I remember going round and shaking the Watford lad's hands, says Sharp. We'd won the cup and we were, of course, delighted. But you're trying not to celebrate right in their faces because you knew what that feeling was like. There's not much you can say other than well done or bad luck. What struck me was that the Watford supporters all stayed to applaud us as we did the lap of honour with the cup. That was absolutely fantastic and we applauded them back. It's one of those moments that will stay with me. It's rare these days. Usually one end of the stadium is empty five minutes after the final whistle. Maybe it was because they had come so far. When I started as a professional, Watford were a fourth division club, but they'd come through the divisions and they played in a cup final. Just getting there was a victory for them, really. 
Maybe they appreciated what it was they'd been a part of that bit more. We didn't expect to lose and the feeling at the end was utter despair, says Barnes. We'd done well against them in the league, but I thought the experience of the club makes a difference in those situations. I felt it a bit at Liverpool. You took the whole thing in your stride more, because it was more familiar, and I felt Everton did have that edge. I'm not saying they took it more seriously than us at all, but we did take it as a lovely day out, and we were enjoying it. Before climbing Wembley's 39 steps to collect his medal, Riley remembered to put in his false teeth, having promised his mother he wouldn't meet a member of the royal family without them. Then the team walked slowly round the stadium, the warm applause taking a bit of the chill out of the shattering realisation that it was all over. Back in the dressing room, Pat Rice, a winner of two cup finals but a loser in three, passed on the benefit of his experience. I said to them, Now you know what it's like to lose a cup final. Remember how much this hurts, and come back and win one. In the other dressing room, Everton's players celebrated. The bath at Wembley is six foot deep, full of warm water, and I just remember standing in the bath with both my arms on the side. My feet dangling, just thinking, I've been to Wembley, I've won a cup, I've got a medal. This is absolutely fantastic, says Richardson. And soaking their manager with champagne, the Everton players began to sing. We did one of Elton's, says Derek Mountfield. I guess that's why they call it the Blues. The controversy over Gray's goal dominated the newspapers and Sherwood took much of the blame. There were not the endless slow-motion replays from a dozen different angles in those days, just an instant judgment that determined the narrative, and that judgment was that Sherwood had dropped a clangor. Don't get me wrong, he says, if I was a manager, I'd want Andy Gray in my team. He'd go for a ball that was no right to be his. That was his way of playing. But that was a foul and the referee should have awarded a free kick. What was disappointing was that all my family were there to see it. The following day, the papers gave me some terrible criticism. It was all my fault. I took the blame. That was the lowest I've been in my career and it took quite a while to get over. People are right when they say Wembley is an awful place to lose. If there was 48 hours I could cut out of my life, that would be it. People say, well, at least you've played in a cup final, but it doesn't feel like that. The referee, John Hunting, was adamant when asked about the incident by journalists after the game. I was absolutely right, he told the Daily Mirror. I was perfectly placed to see the incident, and there was never any question of a foul. There is not the slightest doubt in my mind that Gray headed the ball in. Sherwood went for a long cross from the right, and his momentum took him backwards. He let the ball go, and Gray put it in. Everton's manager Howard Kendall played things down. I've seen it again, and it remains inconclusive. You see what you want to see in it, but there is no point arguing because the referee gave the goal. Up in the director's lounge, there was only one topic of conversation. Was it a goal? I had tremendous respect for the management and board of Everton, says Eddie Plumley. They were fantastic people. I know they'd won it, but they were so magnanimous, really. They were unsure whether it was a goal, and they agreed that they wouldn't have been happy if it was at the other end. For Everton, the cup final heralded a new beginning. They went on to win the league championship and the European Cup Winners' Cup. I don't think people realised at the time just how good they were, says Callaghan. 
If English teams hadn't been banned from Europe, they'd have won the European Cup with more or less the same side. Although he recognised the achievement of having reached the final, defeat did not sit easily with Graham Taylor. I've never brought myself to watch the game, he says. I've seen odd clips here and there, but I've never watched it. And I don't know if I ever will. I don't really like talking about it either. I am not saying they did badly, and I am not putting the blame at their feet. I blame myself for picking the wrong team and announcing it early. We were a young side, and it was a fantastic achievement for a club like Watford to reach the cup final, but it's not right to say we were just happy to be there. I didn't prepare the players for anything other than expecting to win. They partied long into the night. Elton John hosted the do in the garden of John Reed's home near Rickmansworth. Everyone was invited, from the directors to the laundry lady. It was a fantastic night, as the band played, and Elton and Kiki Dee sang Don't Go Breaking My Heart. I've never seen champagne bottles like it, says Price. They were huge. Imagine what it would have been like had we won. We'd still have been there on Monday morning. Someone would have to clear up the empty bottles and streamers the following morning. The job of continuing the team's progress would be less straightforward. Runners-up in the league one year, runners-up in the cup the next, Watford set the bar incredibly high. Although Graham Taylor didn't realise it at the time, the final represented the summit of the inexorable rise. The FA Cup final marks for me the beginning of the end of the story, he says. End of chapter 17 Next time, Graham Taylor seeks to establish Watford as a Division I club.